Amen. Thank you, Tom, and uh, to the elders of New City. It's a delight. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to, to speak and to share with you today. I feel like uh, Peyton Manning or uh, one of those other quarterbacks that, that steps up to the line. Is that all right? I mean, I am a, I am a Niner fan because I am from San Francisco, but the steps up to the, to the line and sorry to use a sports metaphor is the first thing that I say, so forgive me. But I feel like calling an audible, and I just, it was one of those things, I'm sitting over here during the worship set, particularly the last two songs, and I just felt something kind of shift for me. So I've, I sent my PowerPoints on ahead, <laughs> um, and while we were worshiping, I felt a different tug. And I'm standing up here at the line, getting ready to call, getting ready to hike the ball, wondering, do I go, do we do a play-action fake, or, you know, what's going to happen here? And um, I figured if I would just take a moment and start talking about audibles, that I'd get a little bit more clarity from, from the Spirit. And it's not happening. <laughs> um, let me, first of all, uh, again, thank you to the elders for the invitation to speak today, and then to the church here. Thank you for, uh, on a... Sunday following Thanksgiving to gather together and to worship God and to praise Him and thank Him for the beautiful gift that He has offered to us through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. I know we can get caught up at this time of the year. Um, I'm away from my home church, and uh, I know the Sunday after Thanksgiving is one of those Sundays <laughs> where people are still trying to overcome the turkey, <laughs> and they're feeling more like the turkey they just ate than... Um, uh, than the humans that they are, but um, you being here today is is a joy. I, um, it's a joy for me to be with you today. I let me start off by saying this: we gather on Sundays, and John, chapter twenty tells the story of a um, of that first worship gathering in the form of a race. Two disciples racing to emptiness. Racing to an empty tomb on the first day of the week to worship. And when they go racing there, they're racing there initially out of the fear of what has just happened. They've taken our Lord's body and we don't know where they've placed him. And they take off racing on the first day of the week. And when they arrive and they gather together, the three of them, Mary, Magdalene, Peter, and the disciple whom the Lord loved, when they gather there, they come to faith. Even though they don't see the resurrected Lord, they come to faith. Much like what happens to us on the first day. Of the week. When you gather on the first day of the week, you are participating in declaring the gospel by how you allocate your time. You're saying the first day of the week is of utmost importance. So of priority, we gather together to worship to receive the elements, to sing and praise God. And a moment ago, when we were singing 
second to last song. When we were singing Holy Spirit, I was feeling and sensing and experiencing his breath, his life, his um, delight over us as his children, if you will, right? And that's, that's real-time moment with God's presence. And to not lose sight of that, that this is a significant part from the earliest of Christians the first thing they put in order was on the first day of the week we will gather and we will remember we are a resurrectionary people. We are a people that declare the re resurrection in everything that we do. We declare it by the way we order our time. We declare it by the way that we spend our money. We declare the resurrection by everything that we do. Everything. And the first day of the week, Sunday is not Sabbath, it's not the seventh day, it's the first day. And so the, those that became the uh, messianic worshipers, they believed that Jesus had come, they grabbed upon a new day, which would typically be like our Monday. They grabbed upon that day, and they said, this will be the day that we worship the resurrected king, and we will celebrate him. And we will gather together, and we will remind ourselves on this day, God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, and that changed everything. And I think we, we oftentimes run the risk of minimizing um, the resurrection. Um, I, was recently, I was recently very convicted. I, so I'm just I'm going to talk from my heart. Is that, is that Okay. And I would begin with the text and then end with the word of the Lord. And you would say, thanks be to God, but um, I'm just going to talk from my heart. I would hope you'd say, well, maybe not. <laughs> I was thinking about this because we were in our local congregation. I was observing that there was a tendency. Um, so I hail from San Francisco. We live in the city of San Francisco. And when you're in a big city or a city like San Diego, there is a tendency to lose sight of the resurrection because everything happening around you is so great, so grand. Big lights, big buildings, beautiful weather. There's so much to live for right here, right now, that we have a tendency to forget that we are the people that God has saved to put on display the world that is to come. And we tend to forget that. And so we forget that by the way we primarily, by the way we order our time and the way we spend our money. Those are the two primary ways that we forget. And so we may declare with our mouth, we may declare in a moment of communion as a symbol, the resurrection, the body and blood of Christ. But then the way that we're ordering our lives, we're still living it as people that are primarily functioning in the here and the now and don't really believe that there is a world, a resurrection that will dawn, that will happen. And so we then tend to get caught up in the empire that we are a part of and not the kingdom that is coming and that has already invaded our hearts. Um, and what brought this to mind, I'm sorry, your name. 
Sophia, it's beautiful, just the way you were leading us in worship. It's just beautiful. What brought this to mind, while Sophia was leading us in worship, and I was, I was um, just feeling the breath of God on my heart, I was reminded of something that happened in our community within the past few weeks. Um, we had a, a, a girl that showed up um, in the late 40s. She's a, uh, um, uh, a prosecuting attorney for the federal government. She works uh, in San Francisco, and she showed up a couple of weeks, several weeks, several, maybe about a month and a half ago now. And uh, she looked very dis- depressed, very heavy, like there was a lot of a- anxiety and stress that was on her, and she was just, she was sitting there, and she had kind of her arms folded, kind of in this posture, and I could just see the weight on her, uh, on her shoulders. Um, before the service was over, she had exited. She came back the next week, and... Um, she exited again before the service was over, so I didn't have a chance to talk with her. On the third week, I had a chance to sit down and, and meet her and talk with her. She told me a little bit of her story, and we have, which I'm sure is much like what happens at New City, after service, people like to hang out and chit-chat and talk and um, really connect, and, and, and we were connecting, and she happened to stay after on that, on that particular Sunday. She began to tell me a little bit of her story. She was agnostic, um, and she did not... Um, she has a great job. She's married to a wonderful, wonderful man. She has a beautiful, beautiful daughter, two-year-old daughter. She has a nice, beautiful house in, uh, in the city, which to be able to own a house in our city is, I mean, I was already going, wow, you know, you, you have everything that the world says you need to have in order to be happy. And yet, anxiety, stress, having an existential crisis in her life. And um, she, said, she said, a few weeks back, um, I was at a concert, and um, I was standing next to someone backstage, and this person asked me how I was doing, introduced himself, asked me how I was doing, and I said, uh, not so good. I have everything that you're supposed to have that, that America has told me I was supposed to have. I got a great degree. I got a, I'm a lawyer. I have a, I have a great job. I don't work weird out long hours. I, I work the hours that I set to work. You know, she goes, I work about 30 hours a week. I have as much money as anybody would want, but I am so miserable. I am so depressed. I feel such darkness over my life, and I'm trying to find some answers. And it happened to be a believer that was standing next to her that she says this to. And he's like, well, have you considered God? She's like, yeah, I've considered God, but he doesn't exist. I don't believe in him. He's like, well, why don't you believe in him? So she gave some of her reasons, so then they started this intellectual bantering back and forth, right, you know, to which she had an answer for everything that he brought up. And uh, he was like, man, I, I'm not getting anywhere in this conversation. So he says to her, um, hey, maybe, maybe it's not empirical evidence for God that you're really after. Maybe it's just an exper- experiencing his presence. Maybe that's what you really are after. If I send you a bunch of worship music through, through uh, Spotify, a list, would you listen to the songs? She's like, I'm desperate. I'd do anything. All right. So he sends her this Spotify list, which had everything ranging all the way from Bach all the way through to uh, like Hillsong United. To, uh, I mean, just everything in between, you know, slow, fast. Just It, it was all in there. And she started like having these moments where she'd get all weepy and she would get all emotional and she's like, I don't believe in God, but I feel something. I'm not sure what this is. Um, but when I'm listening to this, I feel great joy. So several weeks go by, and she calls him up, and she says, um, I think, you know, I think I've, 
past that part of this. Where do I go from here? And he's like, well, maybe you should, are you a believer? She's like, no, I'm not a believer, but like this feels like there might be some, something here to this. He said, well, maybe you should go experience worship real time. Maybe get around people that are worshiping God and just people watch. <laughs> watch people loving on God, loving their king. Just watch that and see what happens with that. In other words, he was approaching it not so much from a scientific perspective, but more from an artistic perspective. Allow God's presence be around people that... So that's when she showed up at, our, at uh, one of our worship gatherings. And within a couple of weeks, I mean, I would see her crying, really moved, really touched, ministered to. Um, and we were, which I... We were gonna, I was going to do today, but we're not. We were in the middle of a sermon, uh, going through a sermon series talking about money, which I don't like to talk about money. I never do it. This is the first time I've done it in all my life. And, um, uh, and I was like finding myself kind of awkward, like, you know, she's not a believer and if I'm talking about money. And she would come up afterwards and she'd say things like, man, everything you said today, that was just, I think, I think like God is... I don't know that he exists up here, but like in here, I'm feeling like he's talking to you about what I should be listening to. And um, then two weeks ago, during our communion time, she came down and received communion and embraced, embraced Jesus. And um, now I say, I'm saying that to say, when you gather together and you worship the king, like you were doing a moment ago, you are a public you are declaring publicly. You are testifying publicly to God in an artistic way. You're expressing that through song, through the things you say. In a similar incident, about five years ago, we had a guy that showed up uh, that was a part of our um, community, and then he had, he had left. And he, um, while he was away from the community, he had got engaged to a girl that was um, Buddhist, and uh, he was feeling really, I guess you could say, the Spirit was convicting him. So he showed up on one Sunday, and he's like, and he kind of brought her along with him, and they were sitting in the back. And he came down after a service, and he's like, would you pray for me? I just want to, you know, re I just want to reconnect with God again. So I, I prayed with him. We prayed together, and he's like, oh, just really, like, this is great. He's like, all right, now we need to get my, we need to get my girlfriend saved. I was like, um, you know, you might you might let God do that work in her heart and not try to, you go over there and save her? Because he was like, he was like wanting to pull me on the spot to go back there and save her, right? And I was like, ah, you know. So she would come with him because, you know, they were engaged and she would sit in the back and she was getting really frustrated with him because he was like always like trying to pull her down there after a service to have me pray over her, you know. And, um, and so finally one Sunday, I think he had, he had threatened and I kept telling him back off, you know, just back. He had threatened that, you know what, okay, this relationship is over unless you give your life to Jesus. <laughs> I was like, dude, I, I, I don't, that, that does not sound right to me. I mean, you know, I, that sounds very coercive and manipulative, you know. It's kind of like the story of Eugene Peterson when he's, he tells a story of his first convert. Every, okay, yeah, so he, he says when he was a little five-year-old, he was a five- or six-year-old kid, um, the, the bully... Uh, the, the, you know, school bully, whenever he was walking home from school, this kid would beat the snot out of him. And so they would learn, as they were going home from school, there was one alleyway that the bully would wait in. 
and then he would take off running. His parents were devout Christians, and he would get to that, right to that alleyway where the kid wait, and he would run for dear life, and he would go in the door, and you know, a couple times he'd have bruises or whatever, and his mom would sit there, and dad would sit, and they'd have a little talk with him about turning the other cheek and being a Christian, and uh, so he was trying to do his best ability to be a, you know, be a really good Christian, and so this went on for a couple of years. By this time, he's our seven or eight years of age. One day after school, the situation happens again, and finally he'd had it. And he's like, I've got to convert this guy. And he thought the best way to convert him so that he wouldn't get beat up was to turn around and just sock him. <laughs> so he said, I turned around, and I was like, I had had it. I was tired of being bullied. I turned around, and I just socked him. And he said, um, his nose, just immediately, hit him right in the nose. His nose just started you know, bleeding really bad. And then the guy was like, you hit my nose. And he said, then I just felt this joy or something come over me. And I realized, you know what? This is my moment. He said, so I pounced on him and I had him pinned to the ground. And he said, I started hitting him in the chest going saying, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because I don't know where it came from, but he goes, I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I was trying to somehow make it a Christian moment. Um, that's what I felt like with this boyfriend and, his, and uh, this, uh, these, this couple. This final Sunday, he grabs her and takes her by the hand and he pulls her down. And I could see she is like the whole way down. And she comes, she stands down there and he's like, Jeff, you've got to pray for her. She's resisting the Lord. <laughs> he, was, he was, I mean, to be fair, he was, he was uh, you know, he was young in his faith and zealous and and I was, I was like, you know what? I'm on her side on this. And so I turned to her and I said, look, I'm, I'm with you. This is something you do because you find that Jesus, you're attracted to him and, and you love him. And this is not something he should be manipulating you to do. And so we had a little talk and she's like, thank you so much, right? She continues to come. She explains to me that she was Buddhist but atheist. And um, one Sunday three months in, during a worship service, I turn around and I'm, I'm looking back behind me and she'd always sit in the back and I'm looking at our aisleway, which is about this wide, I'm looking at our aisleway and she has come about two-thirds of the way down and she is on her knees with her hands like this, tears falling down her cheeks and she is trembling in the presence of God, just whispering, I surrender, I surrender. There was nobody around her. Her boyfriend was nowhere near. He had not coerced her into this moment. Um, there she was, completely and fully surrendered to God. Now, I'm saying, I'm using both those stories to say something to you as a church. When you are worshiping God, it's not so much the genre, the great artistic ability, although it was beautiful today, but what we find in those moments is an encounter with the living God. And what others walking in that may not know him, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks about this, that there are oftentimes unbelievers that are present with us in our worship gathering. And they encounter the presence of God as we are just worshiping him. It's a beautiful apologetic there's no defense that's needed for the faith when one is in, is in his presence and they cannot intellectually rationalize what's happening, but their heart 
is overwhelmed with the presence of God. Now let me say, as it relates to being a resurrectionary people, the moment that we genuinely believe that God has raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, we are embracing that this life is not the end. That there is a life that we as a people have been called to live for. And if you look at Jesus' teachings, the disciples heard him saying this stuff over and over and over, and mostly in his parables you'll see this. But for an example would be the parable of the, of the, of the wealthy landowner. You know, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store more stuff. And then at the end, when I have bigger barns and more stuff, I'll lean back and I'll say, now eat, drink, and be merry. And what did Jesus say? You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you, and all that stuff that you saved for is going to go on to someone else. You should have invested or chosen to invest in the resurrection. Because that's where you're going from here. (laughs) Folks, the great tribulation. (laughs) Sounds like it's getting louder and louder. Um, so here's what I feel all of that to say this and then we'll receive communion what I feel the spirit has put on my heart to say to you today this was the audible the Lord is calling us to empty ourselves as a way of reflecting on how he emptied himself for us. Philippians chapter 2. Our capitalistic world tells us to store up for ourselves. And Christ says, empty yourself. That is what it means to live. That's what it means to really live. And so Jesus came and he demonstrated to us, he, though he was rich, became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. This is not talking about the riches that he had in heaven, but from what we can tell, Dr. Peter Brown says, Jesus came from a very wealthy family in Nazareth. Jesus was a wealthy man. His father, in all likelihood, was a general contractor for Sephora, and he helped build the big city that was being built at that time. But Jesus emptied himself of all of that, of all divine rights and privileges, and took upon himself the form of a servant. And what we notice in all of this, of him constantly emptying himself, I mean, you look, he empties, he divests himself so much so that when he's with the woman at the well, He's having to ask. He's putting himself in constant vulnerable positions. 
would you get me some water? You're the son of God. Get your own water. You've got muscles. You're a well-grown, you're, you're an adult man, male. You can handle pulling a rope and dipping a pail in, some, in a well and, you know. But he's emptied himself so much that when he goes out on the hillside, he's like, not only did you disciples not bring a lunch, but I did not bring a lunch either. <laughs> Is there anyone out of this 5,000 men, let's say 15,000 people, because women and children weren't counted at that point, is there any of the, of the, of the 15,000 people that are out here, is there anyone that brought a lunch? Like, he's not even planning ahead. Like, you would think, you know, he would have packed a lunch. You know, he was the one leading them out into the wilderness to teach them. He knew what was going to happen. You would have think, you're like, folks, I've got this covered. I know you didn't bring a lunch, but I'm the son of God. I brought a lunch. Watch me with my own lunch make a miracle happen. Not only am I going to share my lunch with you, but I'm going to multiply my lunch. I've got it all covered. But he is like, uh, did, it, did anyone bring a lunch today? I forgot one. Well, you're like the rabbi. You're the teacher. You're the son of God. But he has so emptied himself that he needs a lunch. And one little kid is like, uh, Actually, my mom packed the lunch for me. <laughs> right? You know, his, you know his mother packed that lunch. He was like, run out the door. Oh, everyone's going out to the mountains. They're going out to the mountains because Jesus is talking. His mom's like, going, you're not going without a lunch. But mom, I won't need one. You're not going without a lunch. Get yourself back in here. I've got a lunch for you. <sighs> and you know, the whole time he was carrying it, he was like, this is so embarrassing. I'm the only one with a lunch. Right? He's got it all hidden in his back. The fish is all sweaty. <laughs> the bread's soggy. Right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, anyone? And he's like, one kid. At least 5,000 people. Jesus had so emptied himself. And the cross is the ultimate picture of him emptying himself. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. The ultimate picture of just emptying oneself out. And then placed in a tomb, and watch this. On the third day, God vindicates the empty body and raises it back up. God vindicates those who put their faith and trust in him. God vindicates the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And then he says to us, the way of life is emptying yourself out. Now I want to read uh, an article, and then uh, it's a really short article, and then we'll receive communion here. Um, this is one of my, just as we're talking about um, emptying ourselves out, one of my favorite, I guess you could say, quotes. Irma Bombeck was constantly asked if she saves up her best ideas for the next column or how she parcels out and dribbles out her best ideas. Before Bombeck died, she answered these queries in a column called 
What's saved is often lost. I don't have anything. My pockets are empty at the end of a week. So is my gas tank. So is my file of ideas. I trot out the best I've got. And come the next week, I bargain, whimper, make promises, cower, and throw myself on the mercy of the Almighty for just three more columns in exchange for cleaning my oven. I didn't get to this point overnight. I came from a family of savers who were sired by poverty and worshipped at the altar of self-denial. Throughout the years, I've seen a fair number of my family who have died leaving candles that, were never, that had never been lit, appliances that never got out of the box. It gets to be a habit. I have learned that silver tarnishes when it isn't used, perfume turns to alcohol, candles melt in the attic over the summer, and ideas that are saved for a dry week often become dated. I always had a dream that when I am asked to give an account of my life to a higher court, it will be something like this. So, empty your pockets. What do you have left of your life? Any dreams that were unfulfilled? Any unused talent that, you, that we gave you when you were born that you have still have left? Any unsaid compliments or bits of love that you haven't spread around? And I will answer, I have nothing to return. I spent everything you gave me. I'm as naked as the day I was born. Jesus in his parables talks about with those with the talents. He had no problem with people risking everything, even if they would have lost it. What he did have a problem with was never risking, never trusting, never constantly emptying ourselves out. The fire falls on the sacrifice in Elijah's day. There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. <laughs> resurrection follows crucifixion. And we are a resurrection people. And we live our lives so counterculture, counterintuitively, that the world around us, which, and I know this, at you as a community, I've, I've heard you say this oftentimes, um, you know, live your life in such a way that demands a gospel explanation, right? I think the way that we spend our finances, someone should be able to look at the way we spend our finances and go, this does not make sense. That only the gospel can explain. I, 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 I'm using my finances in such a way that I really believe there is a resurrection. <laughs> I am not living for the right here, the right now. I am more alive, and in that, because of the presence of Jesus Christ in my heart and my life, and I'm filled with that, I am more alive than I have ever been. More alive than I have ever been. More alive, because I'm filled with his life, right? We are filled with his life. Um, would you stand with me? Now, I, you said I have till, I can preach till 1.30, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Two if I want. We started practicing something this year in our, in our church, and I would like to um, encourage you as well to participate um, in this. We do this maybe every three or every three weeks or so. We did a sermon series of the book of Acts last year, and we noticed that, the, that being a res resurrectionary people, is that we are now called to participate in God speak. Like his voice is now within us. His resurrection life is in us and his voice is within us. And so 
immediately. In fact, the first thing that happens in that infantile church when it's birthed on, in Acts chapter 2 is they begin to declare and proclaim and speak wonderful, beautiful, miraculous, and glorious things about God. So much so that the world around them is kind of in a, what is this? What does this mean? What's happening? What's going on? And Peter gets up and he explains, you know, what's going on here is, is back in the First Testament, God would pour out his spirit upon leaders. And they would speak and direct and guide. And we looked up to them. But in these days, these last days, God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. Sons, daughters, old men. <laughs> you already said I was an old man, so. Um, servants, handmaidens. In other words, it doesn't matter age. It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter class, how much you have, how little you have. All flesh. His spirit is on all flesh. That was Peter's answer. And he says, they will prophesy. They will begin to declare and proclaim God's goodness to one another. They will no longer need to go to Jerusalem to hear a priest look at them and declare God's goodness to them. They will be able to look at each other and declare the goodness of God to each other at sometimes in very, very much supernatural, miraculous kind of ways and sometimes in just plain old practical ways. But God's news nonetheless. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, what would happen if we would begin to practice this when we gather on a Sunday and then begin to perfect it together and then turn around and throughout the week we would begin to live that out on Monday and Tuesday so that we were constantly speaking and proclaiming and declaring the goodness of God to each other. And, and it was, you know, for us it was a little bit awkward. Some people were like, oh, like do I have to like my eyes roll up in my head and I go into some trance and then I come out and, like, and I'm like an oracle. <gasps> you know, is this what happens? No, this is not what happens. It's more of like you are surrendering, surrendering your own will of what you would say to someone to God's. And you're looking at someone and you're saying, could I imagine what Jesus would say to my brother? Could I speak that to him? The first Sunday we did this, I was like, so I just want you to turn to one another. I want you to begin just to share with one another what you would imagine. Take a moment. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. And then take a moment and begin to share what you would imagine Jesus, if he were to say and speak something, as elementary as that, as simple as, well, I'd imagine he would, want to, he would say, I love you. It'd be something as simple as that. Or, I think you're cool, my son. <laughs> right? <laughs> but let it come from a heart. We had a, a professor from uh, San Francisco State University that's a psychologist, and he was there, and he has his own practice in the city. And uh, it was like his first or second time um, to be with us at the beginning of the year. And what happened was so powerful and profound in that moment for him. Someone turned to him, looking at him, just begin to say what they, and then him turned around and speaking. He said, I, I went back, and from that day forward, I changed the way that I, that I counseled with people. 
I began to counsel the people that were brought in. I began to just say, Jesus, what would you want me to say to this person? And I was trying to hear what Jesus would have me say. And I, instead of me looking to all of my methods and research for answers, I was listening and speaking things. And there, he goes, there were moments where were just like absolutely miraculous. We, I won't tell you what happened on that Sunday. It was a beautiful thing, but what I would like us to do here before we receive communion um, is take a moment, find one other person, and I want you just to speak into them something that you think Jesus might say to them. It could be with your own, it could be with your family, some kind of blessing, but good news, something you would say to them.